This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is poet and fiction writer Donna Messini. Her poetry collections include Turning to Fiction, That Kind of Danger, and 430 Movie, and her novel is called About Yvonne. Massini teaches at Hunter College, and her work has appeared in the Paris Review, The Best American Poetry, and Plowshares, among others. Her newest collection, 430 Movie, explores the love and loss of her sister and how we are shaped and influenced by art, grief, and violence, to name a few of the themes in her collection. Massini's poems are abundant with wordplay and cinematic imagery, and the language of every day made more stark with the limits she often places on the syntax of her poems. We began the interview discussing Massini's fascination with film in 430 Movie. It happened almost by accident that some of these poems were circling around the idea of, of film, but I have to say, in my MFA program and my graduate my graduate students, I began a few years ago teaching craft of poetry through film. So, for example, first I noticed that a lot of my students were not really movie savvy. They didn't watch movies or they watched them on TV. And I was teaching syntax, but people were talking so much in their poems, and I wanted them to stop talking a little bit and just you know, move in with the camera, move out with the camera. So I would take a Whitman poem, um, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, or I'd take um, Elizabeth Bishop's The Moose and say, look, this is a long tracking shot. Watch this, watch this, you know, see how it moves. There's no punctuation here. It moves. Now the camera's here. Now it moves in to look at the little flowers. Now it moves out. I think that, and I would give very specific assignments. asking them to start with an establishing shot, then three jump cuts, then do X, Y, and Z. Now, I never, I have been teaching for a long time, and I never do my own prompts. I never do my own exercises. But I was seeing that the students were writing really, really beautiful. Sometimes the best, their best writing came out of having to move out of talking into actually seeing, and then to talk onto the page. As I said, I don't do my own prompts, but I think some part of that might have seeped into my own work. That's one thing. Or I would have them look at something like Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player and say, look at how many tones are in here. You know, it's funny, it's tragic, it's awful, it's film noir, you know, look at what it's doing fast forwarding into the future. You know, I'm passionate about movies. I have been since I was a kid, which leads me to the title, 430 Movie, which was actually a TV show. 430 Movie was something that was on every day at 4.30. It was on Channel 7, and I think it was probably national. And so you'd hear the announcer say, it's the 430 Movie. Next week, Steve McQueen week. It's the Great Escape. And I looked forward to those movies. Every week, I would check the paper beforehand, and it was my great escape. It was a difficult family in some ways. My mother was depressed. It was, I was, I think, depressed. It was a very, it was a sibling time because it was after school, and 
we would, or I would, sit in the living room. Not every, not every day, certainly, but in Steve McQueen week, I was glued to that TV set, and you know, it, it infiltrated my my fantasy life. So that was the first. That's the first kind of meaning of 4:30 movie for me. But it's also my favorite time to go to the movies. I get 4.30, you can slip into a movie by yourself and you've worked all day. You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel like a loser or a loner that you're going to the movies by yourself. I love that. I love that you come out at 6.30 and there's still part of the day left and maybe it's still light. Or in the winter, it's kind of lateish when you go in and dark when you come out, but there's still the day and you're safe and you I don't know. For me, that's my that's my favorite, all-time favorite movie time, 4.30. In this collection of poems, you tackle big issues, the death of your sister. You have inclinations towards Buddhism, inclinations towards futility, the view of your life from far away and then close up. And I guess I'm wondering if, because you were so interested in film, if you saw all of this as a, a, at a distance or if that helped you laid out the poems? You know, it's funny when you asked, started to ask the question, I thought you said the you of your life from far away. <laughs> and it is, in a, in a certain way, it is the you of your life. That was one thing I struggled with in this book was I found I was often writing poems with a you. There was a, a I had a real pronoun problem <laughs> It was I would write the you instead of the I. And then I often had to tackle that during the revision process. But to get back to the actual question, I wrote nothing while my sister was the the year that she was ill. I wrote nothing. I I think I lived in a state of caretaking, dread, bargaining, prayer, despair, fear. I tried to be um, as available to her as possible at times I went and because there were times when I could get away from school and just stay with her, times I lived there. Our family was in shock, in dread. So I wrote nothing. Whatever practices I have, you know, like getting up in the morning and writing in a journal and trying to meditate and prayer and all those things went complete was just gone in fact it's 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 gone right now um to I try to when I'm writing really settle myself and pay attention and the only thing I was paying attention to at that time was my sister and also the continual awful things that were happening around us in the world so I I wasn't looking at it when I came away and began a year later to try and write. I couldn't even really look at it. If I tried to write directly out of any of that, I just, all I could think of was my sister's dad, my sister's dad. So I, I found ways of using language. You might notice that some of the poems in the book come out of um, scrambling of the letters of the title. And um, it's not, I think, obvious 
but um, in some ways I had to do that. It was a distancing, um, it was something that I learned from Terence Hayes, who's an amazing poet. Um, uh, he told me about something he had done in his book, Hip Logic, which was to write these poems, and the last word of every line had to come out of some rearrangement of the title. And that helped me have what, what Adrienne Rich one time referred to as the asbestos gloves. Of course, she didn't know then that asbestos was so dangerous, but the asbestos gloves of, um, of craft, of, um, of structure, formal structure that allowed her to, to manipulate dangerous materials. And in some ways, that sort of, that distancing happened through language and those words. And it let me lose my, my thinking self and feel my way into the poems. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is poet and fiction writer Donna Messini, author of the poetry collection 430 Movie. In the very beginning, you start with a theme that you continue called deleted scene, which is something that uh, a poem that you call deleted scene every once in a while throughout the book. And the first Mm -hmm. one is called worry and it takes place in your living room. And you're talking about your sister who says she worries that something would happen. And a lot of times you say, Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. But her worry was verified. You write, Mm -hmm. and now it has. So right. is worry verified? And, and having this experience, how did that change how you looked at the world and maybe how that's in, in your poems in this collection? Two things. One, my sister, my sister was really funny. And it was a terrible time, but there were times when she would just say something. And that, I was sitting with her, and she just looked up at me and said, you know, all these years, we've worried something would happen. And now it has. It was almost like a one-liner. So it was both funny and terrible. And also, because my sister was also a worrier, it was a comment on how worry is, I mean, I think that Aside from Tupperware, that's probably my family legacy. That is what I will. That's what we've all inherited: fear and worry from our our family. And I think that the the constant worrying about stupid things, or worrying that I'm going to miss the train and not get to X on time, all those worries, even more serious worries, were minor then compared to what all of a sudden we had a crisis. We were in crisis. There's a line in one of the poems uh, that goes, it's in a poem called The Extra. She says something like, something like she wonders, you know, what's the difference between prayer and worry? I'm glad you brought up The Extra. It was probably my favorite, one of my favorite poems in the collection. Oh, I'm so happy. It's more narrative than some of the other poems. It's like The Extra is a character. She has a small scene in, I think, a commercial but in between, she's thinking about waves and she's practicing seeing death everywhere on the subway, each corpse looking into a cell phone screen. So she's seeing the humans as already dead. There's elements of hope and Buddhism. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this poem. First, I've had um, 
a lot of very close friends in my life have, have died. And um, I think that one of the first things I always do in the middle of the crisis, aside from, you know, caregiving and being present, is to go back to read the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. And it starts to give me comfort, but I'm just way too Catholic for all of that. And I just cannot. The idea of impermanence um, is is terrifying to me. Um, that particular poem, it's funny that you say it's narrative because it was, it came from a lot of pieces of things. I was trying to write about um, waves and my sister and I um, and our hair, our hair and um, our, um, and, and also the idea of being an extra, like all of us sort of walking around in the world as as extras. I would sometimes walk down the street and think, look, all those people, look at these people. That person maybe has a sister who's dying. Maybe that person has a sister who's dying. And all the pieces of those, it was such a hard poem to write because I had so many long narrative parts that I began to use the language what connected. I finally just said, let me just see, let me, let me do one little kind of sentence at a time. And just, and as I did that, more things would come into the poem. And I got to then play with the idea of the extra and the soul cycle and all the cycles, the waves and cycles and the Krebs cycle and all the cycles and waves. And then when I got to the end of it, you know, I was thinking about the extra. I was thinking that the extra, most of their stuff just ends up on the cutting room floor. And, you know, at this one point, it said something like, she knows most of her most important moments will be in deleted scenes. And that was like an exciting moment because I did have these deleted scenes going throughout the, going throughout the book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is poet and fiction writer Donna Messini, author of the poetry collection 430 Movie. My other favorite poem called What Didn't Work. It's a list of really heady ideas. So you say what didn't work, you know, chemo, uh, Xanax, internet, pain patches, uh, recliners, cooking shows, and you mix, you know, really medical things like PET scans and, and Vicodin with lawn furniture, giving up Miami or bargaining. And so yeah. on one level, I see these all just as big ideas. And the other level, I see them as just pretty interesting words and mm -hmm. then what it makes me think is what does any of it mean and and what are the limitations of language so I'm wondering if you could talk about this poem that poem I took in took out put in took out put in took out it it was one day I just sat down and I 
I was not writing a poem and I just started listing everything that didn't work. It was just to sort of an exorcism and I was angry. And I think so much of, of this book is, is a kind of disbelief that all of the desperate bargaining and praying to, I didn't even know what amounted to nothing. Everything we did, everything we did, it will, will, will. We tried to make her better. I, I sometimes felt like I was, bullying my sister into getting better. And I, I, I think that that, it doesn't feel like a poem to me. And sometimes I think, um, oh, people are going to look at it and say, oh, it's a list and just skip it and go to the next poem. Um, but it became really important for me in this book because it was just part of the experience. And it was, as you said, really mixed up. It would go from this sort of people giving us these oils and Lord's water and, and, um, and these awful medications and, um, that were making her worse. And then, you know, meatloaf, um, uh, none of it, you know, I would get those moments of hope and I think this is going to do it. I would sometimes feel like I was desperately cooking her a meatloaf as if that were going to be the thing that made her better. Like in some list poems, it's incremental and you can feel it build and it, but this one, it is really just a list and one thing isn't more important than the other. It's just all these things. And I think what I'm trying to say is in the middle of crisis, Tarsiva, the medication and an oxygen tank, a balance with the meatloaf, they all have equal importance. Uh, I think for me, I looked to every single one of those things as something that would save her, and none of it worked. In your poem, Split Screen, you have two columns of a poem that you could read it across, or you could read each column separately. That's another one of those poems where the end word of each column comes out of split screen. The way sister ripens, lines, stencil all come out of split screen. Plus, if you notice, the first, as you go down the first column, it spells split screen line by line, S L I T, right? And the last line too has just the last word of the second column, the spells split screen down that way. And it was just something I was just playing and thinking about my sister and thinking about split screens and the two of us. And I wanted to give myself something really technical to have to play with so that I didn't feel, so that I didn't think, so that I just, you know, looked at this, these words and tried to find it. And, um, and that's another one of those poems where I thought, is this gimmicky? Does it do, what does it do? I mean, it's all those questions that you have when you're putting a book together. Uh, and finally, I, I just decided to keep, to keep it in there. It's, um, but is this too private? Is this, um, is this something so much about my sister and myself, you know, the way we're split parts of one another, we, the way we tried to hide in one another or, um, were in fact sort of stencils of one another in certain ways. Um, I don't know that I'll ever do that again because after a while it can get, you lose the sense of, of, of freshness. Um, but I really needed 
during this book, I needed some formal constraints to help me write them. And those columns, they, they, you can read them both ways, but for me, they read best if you read them like straight across. Um, you have to kind of fudge it a little bit to, to, to read down each, other, each column, but you, you can do it. You mentioned that you've had a lot of people in your life die, and death is such a big part of this book. And it sounds like maybe a, a rude question, but I don't mean it to be that way. But does it get easier? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I think that's the shock of it. Like every time someone gets sick or is, I mean, there's this sense of, are you kidding me? This is what life is? Are you kidding me? You know, it does not get easier. There are books I've gone to, like Brenda Hillman. I don't know if you know her work, Brenda Hillman's Death Tractates, which is just a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous book. Or um, Mark Doty's My Alexandria that um, deal with, um, that, that, that grapple with, with loss in a way that is, there's a momentary consolation of feeling like you're, someone has addressed, someone has addressed it. Nothing makes it easier or better. Um, I still have that same um, kind of dread that when my, my sister was <clears throat> sick, I, I often felt like I was like, like just leaning with everything, keeping my foot against the door to prevent things from happening. And nothing, not prayer, not bargaining, not giving anything up, nothing, nothing, nothing helped. And when she died, that death changed me. Actually, there's a line in one of the poems that's just like, goodbye, God of my childhood. It forced me to grapple with what I'd thought of as a personal God, not quite believing, but, but you know, sort of hedging my bets. Um, it forced me to really confront my own sense of superstition and, and control, like that idea that you could control things. You know, do I believe it? No. Like right now? I, I still think I can control things. I'm still making meatloaf for somebody. I'm still, you know, making 14 pots of chicken soup, thinking that it's going to help. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is poet and fiction writer Donna Messini, author of the poetry collection 430 Movie. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is a poem that I have loved forever and memorized, like many poems I love. But it's a Hopkins poem called Carry and Comfort. Not, I'll not, carry and comfort despair, not feast on thee, not untwist, slack they may be, these last strands of man in me, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can. Can something, hope, wish day come, not choose, not to be, but ah, but oh thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me thy ring world right foot rock, lay a lion lamb against me, scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones and fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heaped there, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Why? 
that my chest might fly, my grain lie sheer and clear, nay, in all that toil, that coil, since seems I kissed the rod, hand rather, my heart low, lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer, cheer whom though? The hero whose heaven handling flung me, foot trod me? Or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each one that night, that year of now done darkness, I wretch lay wrestling with my God, my God? You can hear all the conflict, all the struggle, all the the way that the, the syntax is just completely um, twisted and, and wrenched and all the parenthetical argument. And um, uh, what I've always loved about Hopkins, um, Catholic priest, extremely, um, extremely conflicted, um, gay, um, amazing sense of, of language, uh, and yet, I don't know if you could hear it as I read that, but that poem is a sonnet. It's just so amazing. He writes the most amazing sonnets. Um, and I think that that poem, the anger, the struggle, the, um, the backing up and, and how knotted it is, that knotted syntax, just um, that with some of the poems of, 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 of anguish of George Herbert, those, those helped me. Uh, write this book. Um, I have a close friend, poet, who <clears throat> at one time, I just said to her, I can't pray. I cannot pray. And she said, write a prayer. And, um, and that got me started on some of the poems in this book. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is a poem waiting room. And as we, we, talked about before, this is one of those ones where I struggled with pronouns. I also struggled with how much to include. Um, and it's also one of those poems in which the last word of every line comes out of the title, which is Waiting Room. My sister's inside in a green gown, and I'm here twisting dread into origami tissues, riot mind ticking wrong, wrong. Is this what's been waiting all along? All of us carried off on a train, pressed to a window, charting the crazy migration of cells, disaster oaring steadily after us like magi to the babe, and time grim monitor screening each of us in our green toga. One minute, you're drinking your first martini. A minute later, you're roaming some hospital wing. Why call it a wing? Why say origami when it's a useless rag? Now, None of it matters. My iron will, impeccable timing. I think of a far-off, war-torn town, hiding my sister in her twin gown. Originally, this poem was really long. Um, I mean, I think it comes out of many, many, many hours spent in different hospital waiting rooms, doctors' waiting rooms. There was always that, that TV on, like hanging from the, the ceiling, and some either it was inane conversation or terrible, terrible news of, of wars and refugees. And so, so much of that was in the poem. I, I just couldn't figure out how much to include. Um, uh, uh, so much was cut. Um, I had to decide whether originally it began, your sister's inside and in, well, it would, it, the line was different in a green toga or something, but your sister 
And then I had to decide whether I wanted that distancing. Why was I distancing? How did it change it to say my sister? I mean, this was personal crisis. And yet everybody in that waiting room was in a personal crisis. And there was these terrible images of war um, and, and destruction that was hanging over us. And how much of that belonged in this poem? And only a tiny bit actually stayed. It's really in the, the last two lines that that remains. Where do you write? This book I wrote mostly at my kitchen table and sometimes like when I couldn't get something, just I'd just crawl into bed with my notebook and just like try to get quiet. And then whatever phrases or lines came up, I would write down. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I think that for me, the big question is how do I get to the writing? You know, we all have such crazy busy lives and responsibilities. Again, I'm taking care of someone who is ill and I teach full time. And um, that said, I try to do something. Well, of course, there's movies. I can slip into a 430 movie. Um, But I like to, I make things. Maybe I'll make um, a necklace or I walk, 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 or I used to not be able to write unless I was dancing. Um, I dance first. Um, I like to put images next to other images, collages, uh, make a pot of soup, those kinds of things. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a a couple of very trusted poets, uh, friends, close friends who I show the work to, and I always show it to somebody who's not a poet because I want to make sure that... um, Sometimes that person will say, you know what, I don't believe this. Or I don't get this over here. I get really tangled up in this part of the poem. And um, I always like, my ex-husband used to be great for that. He'd just say, "Mm, I don't get this part. Um, So, you know, but there's just, there's a few people at that early stage. How have you dealt with rejection? I'm assuming you mean of poems and fiction, (laughs) Um, not personal rejection. Um, it, it it's hard. Um, it gets, I think, easier, especially with, especially after a crisis. You know, my sister's dead. If somebody rejects one of these poems, you know, I just, I, I also am not somebody who sends poems out a lot. So a, a lot of these poems, I never sent, even sent any place um, to to be published. My first two poetry teachers, one was Audrey Lord, and one was June Jordan. Audrey used to say send your poems out. This is when you would send poems in an envelope with a self-addressed stamped envelope. And she said, always write. I hope you will find this of use. Um, she, oh, she said, always write something that respects your work. Well, that didn't really work for me. And June would say, keep your focus on writing. People are going to reject your poems. Um, but sometimes they'll say, well, show me something else. And if you've just written that poem, you know, you have nothing else to give them. So it's just, it's just the continual going back to writing. Um, it's something I say to my students all the time. Just let it go. Let it go. Grants, awards, things like that. It's kind of a crapshoot. And what is your favorite word? Imagine. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Donna Messini, poet and fiction writer. Her newest collection is called 430 Movie. 
You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.